1: For 90 years, we've been right here, right now, right rug flooring.
3: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, deputy opinion editor, and I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Okay, so you're in London now, right? Yeah, you can tell from the books. They have them in Los Angeles. I mean, they use them as coasters. So you pull them out, they have drink, drink, <laughs>
2: Exactly. <laughs> I must say I'm using a book as a coaster right now for my cup of tea. It's not a very good book. Hello, I'm Minnie Driver. And welcome to Mini Questions. I've always loved Proust's Questionnaire. It was originally an 18th century parlour game meant to reveal an individual's true nature. But with so many questions, there wasn't really an opportunity to expand on anything. So I took the format of Proust's Questionnaire and adapted what I think are seven of the most important questions you could ever ask someone. They are When and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalised, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? What person, place or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that has grown out of a personal disaster? The more people we ask, the more we begin to see what makes us similar and what makes us individual. I've gathered a group of really remarkable people who I'm honoured and humbled to have had a chance to engage with. My guest today on Mini Questions is writer, editor, producer and legendary party thrower Graydon Carter. Graydon co-founded the satirical magazine Spy in 1986 and was editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair magazine for 25 years. After a brief interlude after Vanity Fair, which I believe he called his gardening leave, he created, along with Alessandra Stanley, the online weekly newsletter Airmail, which, as a subscriber, I can tell you is like getting an email each week from your gossipiest, most well-read, well-travelled aunt-slash-uncle-slash-friend-slash-enemy. The Vanity Fair parties celebrating the Oscars that Graydon threw were legendary. It was at that party that I really cut my teeth on, learning how to interact with Hollywood. I remember I was at the party one year, before I was what you call famous, and I'd really ill-advisedly borrowed a way-too-casual striped sundress from a friend, and Madonna asked if I'd come as a beach umbrella, and Fran Lebowitz asked if I was selling ice cream. Good times. Graydon is a man of brevity. He really is the living embodiment of the short letter Mark Twain was referencing in his quote, sorry about the long letter, didn't have time to write a short one.
3: Okay, so tell me about this podcast.
2: What's completely hilarious and ironic with this idea of women becoming sort of invisible and silent after the age of Forty-five, and then it's only women who sort of stand up and go, "No, we're not. We're great." And it's like, "Yeah, but culture doesn't necessarily absolve you of that getting old." And the reality is, I have never been more creative. I have never been making more things that I love. Whether it's the book that I just wrote, which is coming out next year, or this podcast, which came out of you know the isolation of lockdown and wanting to speak to people, wanting to create.
0: For
3: what kind of book? Like a
2: well, it's like a memoir in essays,
3: saucy tell-all.
2: It's a tell most. (laughs) Tell some.
3: (laughs) Tell some, yeah.
2: It's a tell some memoir with the central thesis that runs through the essays being that things not working out is actually everything working out. And that is just life. I
1: like that, yeah.
2: That we might not be witness. We're so used to witnessing everything these days on the internet, seeing every failure and fall down, but it often happens privately.
3: I agree. I agree.
1: Yeah.
2: And my mother used to throw around the Prussian questionnaire. Oh yeah, yeah. And it was always really fun. And I also love Desert Island Discs, which is the English radio program. Right. But it was the first page I would always turn to in Vanity Fair, was the back page.
3: Okay. Very telling.
2: Very telling.
3: That's what Proust said. And you can tell a lot about a person by the way they answer these questions, if they answer them honestly.
2: Definitely. And also, that the brevity of a lot of the questions belies a deeper response, like they seem to engender. Like it's been fascinating.
3: Yeah, yeah. You know, the funniest one we ever got in 20 odd years of doing it was Arnold Schwarzenegger's.
2: (gasps) What did he say?
3: He was just funny and self deprecating. He was really, really funny. Yeah.
2: He is, though. I don't think people realize he was
3: funnier than the comedians who did it.
2: (laughs) He's pretty fantastic. Yeah. When I first met him, I met him. A hundred years ago, he did do this. Hilarious. I mean, by today's standards, it would not be allowed at all. But at the time, I thought it was hilarious and awful in equal measure. He was introduced to me, and his lovely then wife was next to him, smiling. A lot. And I went to shake his hand and he reached out and he just picked me up and he went, Ah, oh, 125
3: pounds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's his party drink.
2: He literally did like a guess your weight and he would have done it to everybody. Yeah. But I told him it wasn't a good idea.
3: No, that'd be against the law. Everything is against the law nowadays, but that's certainly against the law. Yeah.
2: But guessing a woman's weight,
3: no, no, no. Even that's-
2: if you lowball it, you can't ever do that.
3: Yeah, no, I agree.
2: Unless it's like when you're at Balmoral, apparently, where they do weigh you when you arrive for Christmas. Did you see that in that film, Spencer?
3: No I, no, I didn't see that, no.
2: Apparently, the Queen weighs you to see how much you've enjoyed the food, and then they weigh you when you leave and see how much weight you've gained.
3: The silverware in your pockets, you'll weigh more. And into-
2: By the way, that's really what they should be looking for. Is like-
3: <laughs> that's what I do.
2: <laughs> they don't call you light fingers Carter for
3: nothing. No, no, they don't, no. <laughs> So what do you want from me?
2: I want you to answer these seven questions and I want you to make the answers perky and excellent. No,
3: I'm not sure I can do that. It's <laughs> pretty early in the morning here. I mean, in my time, but anyway, um, okay, I'll do my best. Am I supposed to weep at a certain point during this thing? And just
2: Absolutely not. In fact, you might be penalized if you do.
3: Okay, so when do we start?
2: <laughs> okay, we're going to start right now. We're going to start right now. In your life... Can you tell me about something that has grown out of a personal disaster?
3: When I was in college, I had a magazine and it was a literary political magazine, and it, it did nothing but lose money. <laughs> I spent so much time on it that I was thrown out of school before I had so many incompletes. And they said, basically, there's no point in you ever coming back because you can never graduate. And the magazine folds. And I thought, OK, I'm out here. This magazine I worked on for five years had folded, and I was in my uh, early 20s. I was thrown out of school. And I thought, that's it. I mean, I, I've got nothing left. So then 10 years later, I started spy magazine in New York, and that worked. And it was a huge success, and it changed the course of my professional life. But I learned from my magazine in Canada that to succeed, the thing you do has to have a point. And my magazine in Canada didn't really have a point to it. It just was a magazine that wrote about politics and culture in a moronic way, the way 23-year-olds do. And Spy Magazine had a point because it was a satirical magazine about New York City at a very particular time in the city's history. And it was funny, and it was fact-filled, and it was nonfiction, and it did well. And I've had a restaurant that did really well because it had a point and a restaurant that did less well because it didn't have a point. So out of that horrible crisis, and when you're in the early 20s, everything seems like it's like the end of the world. Something came out of it. And that is just that things have to have a point, meaning they have to be there for a reason. There has to be a slight audience for it. And it has to be not a complete ripoff of what's gone before. That is a really
2: good point. I haven't thought about it like that. It's like a story story. William Goldman used to say that you have to have a spine of a story, that everything else hangs on. If you don't have that central spine, it doesn't matter how clever, how brilliant the characters, how wonderful the dialogue. None of it matters if you don't have that central thesis.
3: Right. I mean, look at Star Wars. You know, George Lucas invents something sort of original. There's 8,000 imitations of Star Wars, but if you want to buy a collectible Lego... It's a Star Wars thing. It's not like Star you know, Gigantica or some other ripoff thing. It's the original. And originals, they may take a little longer to catch on, but they have longer shelf lives.
2: So how do you figure out what the point of something is? You personally, how do you know what the point is?
3: Is there a need for it? Was there something exactly like this before? Even if you recreate something from the past, as long as it fills a purpose in other people's lives, because at the end of the day, everybody's in the service industry and whether you're manufacturing artisanal candles in brooklyn or making a um, tesla in texas you're in the service industry you're going to take that candle or that tesla and give it to somebody else and they're going to give you money and that's the service industry And I suppose other than people in FinTech or whatever the hell that is, we're all in the service business. So you got to think about the other person at the other end. And when I edited Vanity Fair, and we never did any readership studies or anything like that, but I just thought of some person getting on an eight-hour flight and picking up a copy of the magazine. And I just wanted to make sure they were engaged and entertained for a portion of that flight. And I figured if they were, they'd come back the next month.
2: Mm -hmm. It's so true. It's so true, and I'm just trying to figure out how it works in like filmmaking, because sometimes it feels like there are films that directors have just made for themselves, and yet they do seem to strike a note.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Like The Lobster, for example, is a strange... I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Oh. It's a strange movie, but you can catch the thread of the creativity and the strangeness of it, which becomes the point. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's slightly harder to pin down in films than it is in a magazine or a restaurant.
3: Well, first of all, you got to be talented. you got to be talented. I mean, there's a lot of untalented filmmakers and it's hard to make a movie. It's hard to make a bad movie, let alone a good one.
2: It's hard to make a movie point blank. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been in some stinkers and some really good ones and they were all as hard to make.
3: Yeah, I bet that's true. That's life. To make a crummy car is just about the same amount of work to make a a really good car. So true. I don't know. I mean, I, to me, the joy in life is about trying to have a job that's less about a sausage assembly line as possible. Make it in each individual meal and try to make it as good as possible because you want the person to enjoy it.
2: I like that. I like that it's a service industry. We're
3: all in a service industry.
2: Yes, 100%. Yeah. If you're offering up any kind of cultural content, you are in a service industry. Yeah, For
3: sure.
2: What question would you most like answered?
3: Well, there's the obvious, what's the world gonna look like at the end of the century for children and grandchildren, and is there life after death? But I feel we're going through an age of unaccountability, and I would like to see some of the miscreants and criminals of the last sort of eight years, I'd like to see justice done. You know, it's funny, after the savings and loan crisis in the early 90s, 900 people went to jail. But after the 2008 banking crisis, nobody went to jail. And I thought, you know, you're never going to scare these people off unless somebody pays the price for it.
2: Do you think that we really are in a sort of middle ages?
3: We're in a strange period and we'll come out of it because we always do, because the pendulum swings very dramatically in the United States and less so in Britain, less so in Canada, probably less so in Australia. But in America, you go from the anti-establishment 60s and by like 1983 or 84, you had a Wall Street explosion with the same people. So things do tend to, to swing. They're going to swing another way. And I have no idea which way that's going to go. But things will be very different in three years than they are now.
0: I
2: agree. So if it's this era of unaccountability, then how is it also this era of sort of witch hunting as well and forcible responsibility? It seems to be these two extremes are happening at the same time.
3: That's a good point.
2: Is that part of the pendulum swinging? I mean, is that part of what you think is that when something cannot settle, when it needs to change, but it can't figure out where it's going to, that all voices just become louder?
3: Well, the culture wars are so far out on one a swing of the pendulum, Do you worry that if the pendulum does swing, those voices won't count at all because that's the only way to go? You can't have them counting more. And if they don't count at all, you go back to a very dark, place where people who are underserved or underprivileged have no say in what's going on. So all I know is it won't stay the same, never does. So things will shift and I have no idea which way they'll shift. And if you're in the 1960s and you said like the same guys that are protesting the war in Vietnam at the 1968 Democratic Convention are going to wind up being the suspender wearing bankers on Wall Street, 14 years later, you say you're crazy.
2: It's so weird because stuff needs to change, like systemic changes. That is a very real happening that America needs and arguably the world
3: needs. Oh, A lot of good will come out of this. I don't know what good will come out of it, but a lot will. Social upheaval, generally, the end result is something better than before the social upheaval started.
2: Right. And that historically that's what it looks like
3: yeah and so four years now things will be better at least i assume so maybe they won't be i'm a half glass full sort of person so
2: my son said the other day when he was like i don't i don't understand uh the glass half full the glass half empty like why don't you just refill the glass so it's full
1: (laughs) like just refill the glass
2: what relationship real or fictionalized defines love for you
3: You know, I've got five children. I've seen the way my children are with each other. And that is absolute and utter true love, even if they haven't seen each other for like four months, because one one lives in Los Angeles, one lives in London, three of them live in New York, that they just sort of pick up a conversation that they left off like six months before and never stop talking. And that would be it. That would be my definition of love.
2: It's the way that they love each other. Yeah. Right. How do you think that you have thoroughly nice children? Because they learned that. That's learned. I feel like it's learned behavior now.
3: Well, no, like we would go to dinner and they would sit at the table. They couldn't bring any toys. There be before screens or anything like that. And they either like said nothing or they would have to start talking to each other. It took a few dinners at restaurants before they all of a sudden they realized that this is it. We have to start talking to each other. And they started and they never stopped.
2: Do you think that conversation is a far more powerful tool than we give it credit for. I feel like conversations kind of dissolved now into screaming matches and that, that idea of being able to share ideas or listen to someone else is kind of a bit more remote.
3: Well, there's always been hot button issues within families, within groups of friends, within colleagues, you know, and during the 1960s and early 70s, you know, the war was a, a very much a, a hot, hot button issue. Uh, you know, climate changes, the culture wars are now. The battle of the sexes in the 60s was a hot button issue. So there's always this. You're going to have sort of elements at a dinner table that you are going to avoid based on your reading of the other people at the table.
2: Right. But it's interesting getting your children to listen to each other or to even engage. Like it was funny, Kate's youngest and my son are the same age. And I took them out for lunch today. And they sat there in, locked in this awkward silence to begin with. And then I got up to go and talk to a friend who I'd seen. And it's so interesting how when there isn't any alternative, they really did just start talking. But it's kind of like their backs have to be against the wall to do it. And there has to be no distraction. Yeah,
3: you need something to prime the pump. I used to do this thing called quiz masters at the dinner table. And because I I got home at 5.30 most days, and then I'd have dinner with my family. We had a thing called quiz masters, and I would just, uh, just make up these things like for five points, What does, you know, NBC stand for, for like eight points, what cars do General Motors make, and you know things like that, and cultural things, and business things, and political things. And as a result, we have something called L- loser nightlife, where we have dinner and watch Jeopardy.
2: I love Jeopardy.
3: So my kids, I mean, my kids are astoundingly good at Jeopardy. I think because of Quiz Masters.
2: You ran your dinner like Trivial Pursuit, Graydon.
3: Yeah, it primes the <laughs> pump and conversation.
2: I think it's really good. I'm adding that into now my percentages of what parenting is. I think being a quizmaster is a legitimate percentage.
3: Sure. Yeah. And it's like stupid stuff. It's not important historical stuff. It's just dumb things that are sort of lint in the culture that you want them to know about is what? Well, because they're going to learn the important stuff in school.
2: Definitely, definitely, definitely. And also, weirdly, there's a brevity in those. Well, maybe it's just with children with a short attention span. A short question with a short answer that has a sort of mind-blowing concept, like my son loves that. You know, the distance from the earth to the sun and-
3: That's why a quiz is good. It's right. Why a quiz is good.
2: But I do also think it gives you like a foundation of curiosity, which I do think needs to be encouraged, particularly now with the distraction of everything.
3: I agree. I agree with that. I agree with that.
2: What would be your last meal?
3: Like the actual food elements.
2: Yeah, I mean, you can actually expand on like where it would be and who it'd be with, but yeah, the food.
3: I'm not going to say like you know Yehudi Menuhin and Winston Churchill like everybody else. Well, I
2: mean, it could be. I mean, you know, I'm not. It's your last dinner.
3: <laughs> My last dinner, it'd be pretty simple. No, I'm not a gourmand and I don't know about wines or anything like that, or smoke cigars or anything like that. I'd probably have Italian food and red wine and uh, vanilla ice cream. And I'd have cigarettes after the meal. You would. Definitely. Are you kidding me? I'd i a cigarette before the meal, cigarette after the meal.
2: Good. So cigarettes Cigarettes are a huge part of your meal.
3: Oh man, I wish they were.
2: I know. I'm with you. I will always, I think, be a smoker who chooses not to smoke.
3: Yeah, no, I'm a white knuckle non-smoker.
2: Yeah, that's actually a good way of putting it. It's terrible. It's terrible to have done something that I knew was so terrible. Yeah. What person, place, or experience has most altered your life?
3: Well, obviously, you know, family members and huge part. You know, Cy Newhouse had a huge impact on my life. I worked for him for 20 years, and he was uh, like a father to me. And I learned more from him than I probably learned from anybody in a working situation. And I feel uh, blessed by that. And, uh, and I got to ride the Concord at the same time. So that was win-win.
2: Hold on. So did he teach you a lot about life or about specifically working in publishing and being an editor?
3: It's all together. You know, he hated trickery. He loved, you know, the cleanliness of making a magazine as easy to read as humanly possible. And there were often, when you have lunch with them, there'd be long gaps and you learned not to fill in those gaps because Sai was thinking about what he wanted to say. And as a result, I don't recall him ever saying anything dumb. Ever. Everything he said was thoughtful and reasoned, and he had a sort of Yoda-ish wisdom. And this I've also learned that he would have a conversation about a problem in a very Socratic method. Rather than saying, do this, he said, have you thought of this? And you'd work through a problem that way.
2: So where he'd ask you to examine, like, have you thought about these different ways of looking at this?
3: Yes. And you could say, well, I can't do it this way because of this, for this reason and that reason. And I think it came through him organically. I don't think anybody sort of instructed him to do this. It's just the way his mind worked. I found it invaluable when I was working for him and I find it of value as I work after him now.
2: Do you think that having a sort of paternal or avuncular figure in your life, was that all pre-children?
3: I'm trying to think. No, I've, I've always had a an older man in my life. And, it, you know, when you're in your 20s and somebody in their 30s takes you seriously, you're, you know, you're ecstatic. It's very validating. And so I've always been blessed with any number of sort of older figures. I mean, David Halberstam was a good friend of mine, and he was 15 years older than me. But we used to talk a couple of times a week. And there was a writer called Michael Hare, who had wrote a very famous book about Vietnam called Dispatches. And, you know, I talked to him for hours each day. I used to talk to him for hours every day to like Fran Lebowitz. So it's just, there are a lot of people in your life that have a part in shaping who you become over the years and the way you think.
2: Yeah. Do you find that you are that figure for your children?
3: Um, You know, you want your children to be able to come to you, but you do not want to be uh, intruding on their lives. They're adults, they have their own lives, their own careers, and I'm there as a backdrop in case they want to talk about something. And I see a lot of them, and I'm trying to be as supportive and helpful as I can without getting in the way.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest
1: paranormal podcast.
0: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity Voice Remote.
1: Right here, right now, find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
2: There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time.
3: I mean, I'm generally a pretty content person. I can put up with a lot of crap and still manage to get through a good day. But four years ago, almost today, I'd left Vanity Fair. I left Vanity Fair one day. The next day, we were on a flight to London on our way to Provence. And the time I spent spent most of the next three years in this little town in Provence, about 20 miles north of Antibes. And I honestly think I was happier there than I've ever been in my life. I had no stress of a big job and you know, jobs like, you know, being the editor of Vanity Ferrets it's an enjoyable job, but it, it is stressful and it does take its toll. And I just felt like all this weight had been lifted from my shoulders. I got like 2000 letters from around the world of uh, people saying congratulations or whatever. And I replied to every one of them and I just read and relaxed and went to the Christmas markets and we had 13 family members come for Christmas. And it was just one of the most enjoyable periods of my life.
2: And how long were you there for?
3: Well, uh, two and a half years over a three and a half year period. And we had wow. to go back to New York for a period. And then we're, we're back in New York now. That's where I am now.
2: So why, if we don't associate work with being happy, then why is that the sort of apparent be all and end all pursuit? It's like, why are we happiest when we don't have that pressure? And yet that pressure is about 90% of our lives, it seems, or the pursuit of it.
3: Well, there's stress and there's pressure. And I find that stress comes from external factors. And pressure is just sort of something you can put on yourself to do something better, to write something better, to film something better, to paint something better. And I love working and I love my job at Vanity Fair. I was just really happy when it was done. Yeah. I love working.
2: Yeah, me too. I love it.
3: In, in moderation.
2: Yeah. The best time is the time between when I know I've got a job and when the job actually starts. I really like that bit in between.
3: I bet that's true. Because you need an income and you need to be busy. Otherwise, you just wind up um, being a playing golf and becoming a Republican.
2: Oh, yes. Those two things do seem to go hand in hand. They do. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much.
3: Okay. Okay. It was a pleasure. And thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Graydon. Loads of love. You can sign up to receive airmail weekly. And inside airmail is this incredible thing called Arts Intel, which is the only global cultural matrix for finding out what's happening in the arts around the whole world. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoie. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Minnie Driver. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me, Minnie Driver. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dela Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg. And for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver.
4: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
0: plus at these prices? You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com.